I'll let you know that um, as we look at this text, um, there's a lot in this text. I'm not sure I'm going to get to everything in this text, but you... Um, Usually, my sermon texts are shorter than R.C. Sproul's, um, but this time it's longer. I, I got to him on Thursday morning, and I'm looking at that little thing, and actually I'm scanning on my, it's the one thing I have on my iPad, and I was like, oh my goodness, look at this. He only did a couple verses there. Huh, interesting. Um, so, but we're going with it. John, chapter 14, uh, verses one through 6-7-ish. I keep going back and forth. I may bring that last verse up again next week. We will see. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Sorry there. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that what um, Jesus said to them is also in many ways uh, true for us. That if we have known Jesus, we have known you. For your Son is uh, the exact image of you. Your Son, as uh, John's prologue talks about, uh, exegetes you, helps us to understand you, so that you have not left us to fumble in the dark or to rely on our own understanding, but that you have revealed yourself fully in your Son. And so we ask that uh, your Spirit would be at work in us helping us to understand the Scriptures this morning so that we might know you more fully, that we might trust you as a result more fully than we already do. And if there are those who don't trust you at all, that this may be your means for bringing them into saving faith in Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, it is so easy for our hearts to get troubled. It's easy for me, my heart to get troubled. I mean, that, in a sense, that's why I try to avoid network news, because there's so much troubling news. But, you know, you can avoid TV and still get inundated with troubling things that will make your heart fret. If you're on Facebook... Don't worry, they'll tell you all of those troubling things. And uh, the way in which they tell you might be even more troubling at times. Troubling things around us. More shootings taking place. Uh, Police officers who seem to um, have unjustified shootings of people. 
police officers getting shot by people. Lately in the news, of course, we've uh, heard the uh, problems with Planned Parenthood and heard their denials of such problems. We've had Supreme Court decisions that have troubled us. There's a lot of trouble, and not just in River City. Okay, What are we to do? Where are we to go? And I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at here, because what he says is not just pertains to the disciples who were troubled, but it, I believe, also pertains to us when we experience this troubledness of heart. The big idea I want us to really focus on is that Jesus is the way to the place that he prepares. Let's start with, in a sense, the first verse there in this passage, And it really is a cry, a call, to entrust your life to Him when life is troubling. The disciples, of course, they're still in the upper room. Jesus has washed their feet, and they've, they've partaken of dinner together. They've heard that one of them is about to betray Jesus. They've heard the call to love one another as Christ has loved them, and that would be troubling to me because I know how poorly I love other people. And But they've also heard Peter go, I'm going to die with you, Jesus, and to which Jesus said, not right now you're not. You're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. They're troubled. They're anxious of heart. This is indeed the same word that Jesus is used of Jesus himself in the previous couple of chapters. They're agitated. And we can understand that when we we know what they're going through, what they've just heard, because the one that they have left everything to follow is about to, from their perspective, abandon them. Have you ever had those days when, when life changes in a cataclysmic sort of fashion? When everything that was normal now is not. That's what they're experiencing right here. Their normal is about to be turned upside down, and as you might imagine, they're not necessarily dealing with it well. Okay? This, in a sense, is almost like the death or divorce of a spouse. It's that kind of cataclysmic of a change that's taking place. And so Jesus speaks to their distress and our distress when He says, let not your hearts be troubled. In other words, do not permit your hearts to be troubled. And this implies, I think, this, the idea that this is a command that he makes to them. And this implies to me, anyway, that there is a sense in which we are able to not allow our emotions rule us. That there is a way for us to begin to rule our emotions. I speak to you as one who has not yet learned this secret completely, okay? All right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the support. I appreciate it. Okay? I haven't gotten where I want to be, and so this is a word to me. It's a word to all of us. Okay? We're not to submit to our emotions. 
But I think as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we are to speak to our emotions. Why do we want to avoid troubled hearts? Not just because we feel bad, but troubled hearts, I think, generally speaking, tend to make bad decisions. Okay? When we are operating... Now, a troubled heart is one that is operating out of fear. And when we make choices out of fear, they tend to be very bad choices. One of the worst arguments that Amy and I ever had took place... Sorry, Amy, I didn't give you a heads up on this one. Okay? May there not be an argument later today. (laughs) The Philadelphia airport. Okay? She knows exactly what I'm going to say. Okay? We had a delayed flight, and we weren't arguing about the delayed flight, but we were just sort of, God trapped us in Philadelphia for an extra hour or two because we had to talk about something, and that was because my heart was troubled because my severance package was ending in less than a month, and this was the one possible job opportunity. We had flown up there, my second visit up there, to interview with this church, and she's going to me, Steve, don't. Bad fit. I know it looks tempting, but don't go. In, in my troubledness of heart, left up to myself, I would have made a very bad decision. And thankfully, God intervened so that our fight in Philadelphia didn't kind of you know, continue on in Florida with an offer. Okay? God, in a sense, preserved us from that. But when we're troubled, we make bad decisions. Not only that, but I think when we are troubled, we tend to misinterpret reality. Some of the Planned Parenthood stuff, bizarre to me, but yet I've kind of figured, I can't, this is how I work through this stuff. Because from my perspective, it's hard for me to, to look at Planned Parenthood and go, wow. They're just so oppressed. But that's, the, that's the, the, what they want you to believe, is that they're put down, that they're under danger, uh, they're, they're, they're constantly under threat and everything else. That's what they want you to think. And I think one of the things that helped me to understand why they do that is reading Abby Johnson's book on Planned Parenthood. Well, Unplanned. I can't remember the title of the book. Amy will tell you. She probably remembers it. But there... And I think this goes back to their guilt. They feel guilty. They wouldn't say they do, but how can you not, unless your conscience is completely seared, do what they do? And so they come up with justifications for what they do. And they feel persecuted because they're doing the wrong thing. And and it's not big, bad, evil people out there. It's people telling them, you're doing wrong. But they... You know how it says in scriptures that the the wicked man flees from a leaf. That's what it is. Everything is magnified for them. They're misinterpreting reality in many ways because of the troubledness of their heart because they're steadfast in sin. The issue here that I think Jesus is trying to bring to the forefront is what controls your heart Is it your circumstances? Or is it God's goodness and control? 
when we're troubled of heart, what it means is we're now giving our circumstances power over us. As opposed to recognizing that God is in control. And though this thing that we're experiencing may not feel good, it will be worked for good in our lives. What is Jesus' solution? It sounds so simplistic. It sounds so obvious. And yet it sounds so difficult in many ways. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, <coughs> there's a little confusion. If you go and you, you compare translations, you'll see that there's, there's some differences in the translations and how they understand this. And that is because of that the word believe in Greek, uh, it's, it's identical whether it is indicative mood or imperative mood, a statement of fact or a command. And so we don't know whether Jesus is saying, you believe in God and you also believe in me, or if he's saying, you must believe in God and you must believe also in me, or you believe in God, also believe in me. You understand how kind of it gets. Okay? But either way, we should recognize that this is a call to faith. Whether or not he's, a, he's saying that they have it, they should have it. And we should have it. Okay? In the midst of our distress, he's pointing you know, back to himself and back to the Father. You see, it is faith in God and in His goodness and His power that is intended to calm our troubled hearts. Because we're not victims to fate. But we are in the hands of a loving Father. And so, we need to speak in a sense, to our hearts in the midst of our troubled circumstances and apply that gospel balm to it. I need to trust God. I need to trust my Savior with these things. Think of what God said to the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29. Okay, They're in exile. They're far away from the home they love. They're far away from the temple where they could worship God and meet with God. They're very distraught and troubled. And he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so while our context may be a little bit different, there still is that promise because of his character that God does know the plans for you and he does offer you hope in Jesus Christ. We read from Philippians 4 this morning. How is it that we can be anxious for nothing? But it says it brings it back to, to him. Pray. Make your petitions. Not live in ignorance. Pretend those problems don't exist. But bring them to the foot of the cross. Make your petitions known to him. And it is then that the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus so they won't be as troubled. 
but you have to give them over to him. We do that by faith. But what we have to recognize here as well when he says, believe in God, believe also in me, is that Jesus is once again placing himself on equal footing with God. If he's not, if he is less than God, fully God, and he says, trust in me, then he's basically calling you to commit idolatry. So either Jesus is fully God, eternally God, as we see in the prologue and everywhere else in John's Gospel, or he's a deceiver who's trying to lead people astray. This is a significant phrase that is given here. Why should you trust in him? Why should the disciples trust in him? Well, just think of this one gospel. What have they seen? They've seen Jesus heal the man who was paralyzed for 39 years. They've seen Jesus make a man who was born blind able to see. They've seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, not five minutes dead, three days dead. They've seen this. Cannot the one who's able to do those things bring comfort to them and be at work in their circumstances? Of course he can. Think of all the ways he has revealed himself to his disciples as they listen to these public discourses as well as the private conversations that he's had with them about who he really is, how he's the bread of life, how he's the son of man, how he's the resurrection and the life, how he provides living water, all of these things. That's someone you can trust. That's someone you can entrust yourself to. So there's solid ground and evidence for their trust. And if we receive the testimony of the Scriptures, then there is solid ground for us to entrust ourselves to Him as well. And so when we're troubled, what we tend to do is pull back from the very things that we need, and that would be the Scriptures. Instead of distancing ourselves, this is what we do. I don't know, maybe you're not like me, but what do do you do? You sit and you ponder and you think and you ruminate and you twist the problem over and over again in your head, right? Is that ever helpful? Usually not. Occasionally you come up with a solution, okay? But not often. We're supposed to go back to the Scriptures. We're supposed to feed our faith because... It gets hungry. (laughs) And the only thing that feeds it is the testimony of God in the Scriptures. We need to feed our faith from the Scriptures, seeing who Jesus is and seeing all that He has done for us. And that is why in places like Hebrews 12, He says in the NIV, it's fix your eyes on Jesus, and I love that. Uh, In the ESV, it's looking to Jesus, which is a, a phrase that John Newton uses frequently. But that's the, instead of looking at your problem through the scriptures, we need to look to Jesus so that our troubled hearts begin to calm down because just like a child who's just had a nightmare, what do they do? They seek out mom or dad. And what happens when they're with mom and dad? Everything is okay again. The only way for everything to be okay again is if you run to Jesus and the Father. 
And so when your heart is troubled, turn to Jesus and trust Him to do good things in the midst of that trouble. Secondly, let us see that Jesus prepares a place for His people. Jesus is not just relying on the past and what He has said and what He has done, but He continues to encourage their faith in Him and what He says next. And it's specifically, I think, tied to the problem. Where is Jesus going? He's about to tell them where He's going. Why is Jesus going there? He's about to tell them why. When He says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. Think of it this way. Think of it as an estate. A rich man's estate. Which is many rooms for servants, but also usually many guest quarters. And I, I haven't moved up to that status where I have a guest house. I don't think I'm ever going to move up to that status where I have a guest house. Okay? But the Father has lots of space. The first Christmas that uh, I was married to Amy, and we went to upstate New York uh, where her, her parents retired, large farmhouse and there were well over 25 people sleeping in that farmhouse okay that's a picture to me anyway of what jesus is saying i'm going i'm preparing a place there's room for you in my father's house there's plenty of space for you to come and not just to visit for a week but to stay in my father's house the point of this word, because uh, sometimes it's been translated mansions, and so some of our hymns say in mansions of glory and endless delight. It, it, the, the word doesn't really mean mansion. It just means dwelling place. Okay, We're going to find that same word later on in this very same chapter because you are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Are you a mansion? I'm not a mansion. <laughs> Sometimes I think my belly wants to get to mansion-like develop, uh, you know, spatial qualities. But no. um, a dwelling place. It's it's simple. Why is he leaving? It's not just that the Father has many rooms, many dwelling places, but he's leaving to go and prepare a place for you. He's telling them. You're not going to be here forever. One day you are going to be with me. And in light of that, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I, when my children asked me a couple weeks ago, Daddy, why do you have to go home now? What I could have said is, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to get the house ready. Not that I did a whole lot to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll overlook that fact. <laughs> I could have said that. It might have been true in some context, in some ways. Uh, you know, Jesus is doing precisely what a groom would do in that culture. You know, he pays the bride price, and then what does he do? He goes and builds a house for his beloved. And so Jesus is essentially saying here, I'm going to build a place for my people, my beloved. He's leaving to prepare that place, that dwelling place. And so Jesus is not holding out simply an earthly hope. It'll get better, Steve. <laughs> He's holding out also an eternal hope in the face of earthly loss. Okay? And sometimes I do my best thinking in bed. You know, when I've woken up, and I don't want to get out of bed yet. 
and I procrastinate, and sometimes my mind thinks. And for some reason, well, that's obvious, I would think about my sermon. But my mind went to Genesis 17. Now that's why we read it this morning, Genesis 17. What is the promise of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17, if anyone was paying attention? What was that? Okay, well, yeah, they have children, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it says numerous times, to you and your offspring, to you and your offspring, to you and your offspring, that covenantal thing. But land or place and God, person. This, this promise is to all the, you and all those children I'm going to give you. You're going to have a place that I'm going to give you, and I am going to be your God. Okay? And I love my covenantal Baptist brothers, but they seem to forget that repeatedly in that text it says, I will be their God. The land in my mind is secondary. They get a God. Who's going to love them and care for them? And so Jesus is saying here, I got a place for you, and I'm going to be your God. Trust me. I'm fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, and I'm expanding it and making it greater because, in a sense, who wants that desert anyway? Micah does. I don't know why Micah wants the desert. I'll ask her when we get home. So much greater the fulfillment than the promise, as we see. So I think we really need to look at this in light of the Abrahamic covenant. They are not left to find their way. Jesus says, I will come again and take you to myself. Now, I probably would have spent far too much time in bed if I was thinking about this. Because this is a very sort of, in some ways, confusing statement. Precisely because he's speaking to the disciples. And so, we would, as I would normally sort of go, well, he's talking about the second coming. Well, he's talking to the disciples. And, you know, he hasn't come back yet. And so I don't think he's speaking about that which means I'm not exactly sure what he's speaking about. Perhaps there is the apocryphal writing of... Um, actually, Jude mentions it, I think. Um, the angel and the demon fighting over the body of Moses. Maybe there's that idea of Christ comes... You know, They talk about the grim reaper comes for you, for a Christian... Maybe it is Christ comes through the Spirit to bring His people home. I won't die on that hill, but it sounds perfectly reasonable to me. But the idea, the thing that is clear is that He receives us. He receives His people. And so, you know, I went ahead of my family, but you know what? I didn't stay at the house. I met them at the airport. I received them, brought them in the van, and took them home. I didn't just say, find your own way. Have a good day. 
I would be in big trouble if I had tried that, <laughs> on numerous fronts if I had tried that. But he, they are received by Jesus precisely because of his death. His work is sufficient so that they are welcome. We are welcome. My, my wife did have an experience once where she was... Uh, going to visit one of her doctors in New Jersey, and she had set up uh, where she was going to stay and uh, was looking forward to staying there with the, with the people. And um, at the last minute, okay, keep in mind, pregnant woman, I didn't, put, they didn't include that information yet, this is when she was pregnant with Jaden, pregnant woman already traveled to New Jersey needing place to stay and being told, sorry, you can't come here tonight. That's not going to happen if we're in Christ Jesus. He will not kind of say, oh, sorry, you know, it's, it's full, or we don't want you anymore, or any of that kind of stuff. Because we are perfectly loved and accepted in the Beloved, the Son. Okay? And so those who believe Him, who trust in Him, will be received because the assurance of our salvation is about His work, not our work. And so Jesus wants us to trust him to prepare that eternal place for us and for all of his people. Third thing, Jesus is the way because he's the truth and the life. These are all connected. It's not incidental that he kind of can ramble. It's not like he's rambling on and not sure what to say. Now, the, the, what prompts this is that Judas, not Judas, sorry, Thomas, questions Jesus as if the, he was looking for directions to the Father's house. Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we get there? It's like he wants Jesus to you know, program his GPS or something. Or to give him the landmarks. That's how I used to get anywhere. Okay, give me the landmark. You know, what, what kind of, what, not just the streets, but okay, oh, I turn left at the Burger King. I can understand that. Okay, I'm, I'm dumb when I'm driving in a, in a foreign place. So I like landmarks. That's essentially kind of what Thomas is saying. And, and Jesus is like, you know the way. <laughs> We've talked about this in a sense. Uh, there are many conversations that he, they probably had privately, but also just in the, declar- the public discourses that Jesus had. This answer should have been obvious to Thomas, but Jesus says, again, evoking the divine name again. This is one of the famous I am statements in John's Gospel, and this time it is, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's how he reveals himself. He reveals Himself as the way. He doesn't just reveal the way. Okay? He's he's not like Buddha. Buddha came and and said, you know, here's the way to enlightenment. And that's what many non-Christian religions are. they're, They're sort of, here's a way. They're trying to reveal a way to salvation or enlightenment or something. And Jesus is not saying, here's the way. Says, I am the way. Okay? When in, in places like Psalm 25, when it says, Teach me your ways, teach me your path, essentially it's, Teach me Jesus. 
Because He is the living example of your ways. Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfilled the Father's will, who walked in complete steadfast and faithfulness to the law. Jesus is the way. If we don't have Jesus, we have no dwelling place, so to speak. Jesus, as we see in Hebrews 10, is the new and living way because He earned that way in His flesh through His death. And so, He's the way precisely because He's about to leave the disciples and die to bring them home. He's the way. He's made the payment that is necessary for salvation. He's also the truth. He doesn't simply tell the truth. Now, everything he said was truthful, precisely because we know that he cannot lie if he is God. Titus 2, verse 2. God who never lies. So if he's divine... He can't lie, because that would be sin. God cannot sin. Hebrews 6 has that same sort of idea. It's it's trying to confirm all of these things. And uh, it was confirmed by two unchangeable things, um, his, his oath and his covenant, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Okay? So yes, the truthfulness and veracity of everything Jesus said. So he doesn't simply tell the truth, however, but he is the source of all truth as God. And this has been the steady drumbeat of the Gospel of John. It begins in chapter 1, Jesus full of grace and truth. And the issue of truth comes up repeatedly throughout this Gospel, and they should have heard this so many times that it should have been automatic for them Of course, Jesus, you are the truth. His word is dependable and accurate. Not only is he the truth, he is also the life. He is the way precisely because he is the life. He has life in himself and therefore can give life to other people which we've seen consistently throughout this gospel. It begins in the, very, in the prologue. This is an echo of the prologue. In Him was life. Not just truth, but life. And He's able to give life as a result. Can any mere man give eternal life? And so it bounces back on us for us to consider, where do you look to discover truth? Now, I'm not talking about just facts. I'm talking about the interpretation of those facts. What do they mean? Where do you go for truth and life? We go to many places, and only one of them is good. Okay? You can get some facts from other places, but you won't necessarily get the proper interpretation of those facts. Jesus is the truth and the life, and He is therefore the one to whom we should go to receive truth and life. And how does He sum this up for us? 
He basically wants us to know that he is the trustworthy giver of life and therefore the way to the Father's house. So he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He wants this to be very clear. Okay? It's not some people come to the Father through me, but others might come another way. It's no one comes but through me. R.C. Sproul tells a, a story of when he was in college. And um, in a different place, he mentions that he went to college on a football scholarship. And, and it was while he was visiting um, that he and, a, he and a very good friend of his had gone out and had a little too much fun. Okay, And when they came back, they ran into the captain of the team, a quarterback. And the captain of the team... They spent time talking with him, and he laid out the gospel. And this unknown man is the human reason why R.C. Sproul is a Christian. Okay? So now here's R.C. as a relatively young Christian. He's in college, and he has a professor who hates Christianity and knows R.C. is a Christian. And in the midst of the class, why do Christians think that they are the only ones who get to heaven? Why do they think that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? Isn't that narrow-minded of you? And Arshi didn't respond in class, but she approached him later and he, he said this text. We are not exclusivists because we want to be, but because Jesus said we are to be. Left to myself, I'm perfectly happy with other people getting to heaven by other ways. Because you know what that means? Maybe my family will get there, even though they reject Jesus. But that option is not open to me because I am captive to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures say, and Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the one who's being exclusivistic precisely because there is no one else like Him. There's no one else who's fit to be the way. There's no one who is the truth. There's no one who is the life. And so He's the only way. Which is why the apostles repeated that there is no name in heaven or earth by which we might be saved except that one name in Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else. Jesus is the only one given to us. He is the only mediator between God and man, as, Peter, as Paul says in 1 Timothy. That is a hard truth. Particularly... Ooh, in our pluralistic culture. But the only way for us to um, change that is to let go of Jesus. Not an option. Because then you have no way. You have no truth. And you have no life. So troubled hearts shrink when they focus on their circumstances. Life shrinks when we focus on our circumstances. 
But Jesus invites his disciples to expand their hearts by focusing on him and his promises. And when life troubles us, what we need to do is fix our eyes on Jesus, who has indeed overcome the world, and who will safely see us to the place that he's preparing for his people in eternal rest with the Father in his presence. And so when you're troubled, run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that while it is simple, in a sense, to say it, you reinforce it with so many reasons for us to run to Jesus. That you didn't just drop a command out of the sky but that you sent your Son to show us why we can trust him. And we thank you for your word, which is born testimony to why we can trust him and not be disappointed or put to shame. And so work by the power of your Spirit. Even this week, as we all encounter troubling circumstances. That we would be able to look to Jesus and that we would develop a holy habit, Father, that only you can do by the power of the Spirit of looking quickly to Jesus. That we might trust him in the midst of our trouble so that we are not troubled. And we ask this in the name of our all-powerful Shepherd, in whose hand we are secure. Amen.